Book the Second, Chapter Nine of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadine Kerboulet, Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Nine: Fate or Chance. It was close on six o'clock when Alan and his friends left the boat and the evening influence was creeping already, in its mystery and its stillness, over the watery solitude of the brutes. The shore in these wild regions was not like the shore elsewhere. Firm as it looked, the garden ground in front of the reed-cutter's cottage was floating ground that rose and fell and oozed into puddles under the pressure of the foot. The boatman who guided the visitors warned them to keep to the path, and pointed through gaps in the reeds and pollards to grassy places, on which strangers would have walked confidently, where the crust of earth was not strong enough to bear the weight of a child over the unfathomed depth of slime and water beneath. The solitary cottage, built of planks pitched black, stood on ground that had been steadied and strengthened by resting it on piles. A little wooden tower rose at one end of the roof, and served as a lookout post in the fowling season. From this elevation the eye ranged far and wide over a wilderness of winding water and lonesome marsh. If the reed-cutter had lost his boat, he would have been as completely isolated from all communication with town or village as if his place of abode had been a light vessel instead of a cottage. Neither he nor his family complained of their solitude, or looked in any way the rougher or the worse for it. His wife received the visitors hospitably, in a snug little room, with a raftered ceiling and windows which looked like windows in a cabin on board ship. His wife's father told stories of the famous days when the smugglers came up from the sea at night, rowing through the network of rivers with muffled oars till they gained the lonely broads, and sang their spirit casks in the water, far from the coast guard's reach. His wild little children played at hide-and-seek with the visitors, and the visitors ranged in and out of the cottage, and round and round the morsel of firm earth on which it stood, surprised and delighted by the novelty of all they saw. The one person who noticed the advance of the evening, the one person who thought of the flying time and the stationary pentecosts in the boat, was young Petgift. That experienced pilot of the broods looked askance at his watch and drew Alan aside at the first opportunity. "'I don't wish to hurry you, Mr. Armadale,' said Petgift, Jr., "'but the time is getting on, and there's a lady in the case.' "'A lady?' repeated Alan. "'Yes, sir,' rejoined young Pedgift. "'A lady from London, connected, if you'll allow me to jog your memory, "'with a bunny chaise and white harness.' "'Good heavens, the governess!' cried Alan. "'Why, we have forgotten all about her.' "'Don't be alarmed, sir. There's plenty of time, if we only get into the boat again.' "'This is how it stands, Mr. Armadale.' We settled, if you remember, to have the gypsy tea-making at the next broad to this, Hurlmere. Certainly, said Ellen. Hurlmere is the place where my friend Midwinter has promised to come and meet us. Hurlmere is where the governess will be, sir, if your coachman follows my directions, pursued young Pedgift. We have got nearly an hour's punting to do along the twists and turns of the narrow waters, which they call the sounds here, between this and Hurlmere and according to my calculations we must get on board again in five minutes, if we are to be in time to meet the governess and to meet your friend. "'We mustn't miss my friend on any account,' said Alan, "'or the governess either, of course.' 
I'll tell the Major. Major Milroy was at that moment preparing to mount the wooden watch-tower of the cottage to see the view. The ever-useful Pedgift volunteered to go up with him and rattle off all the necessary local explanations in half the time which the reed-cutter would occupy in describing his own neighborhood to a stranger. Alan remained standing in front of the cottage, more quiet and more thoughtful than usual. His interview with young Pedgift had brought his absent friend to his memory for the first time since the picnic party had started. He was surprised that Midwinter, so much in his thoughts on all other occasions, should have been so long out of his thoughts now. Something troubled him, like a sense of self-reproach, as his mind reverted to the faithful friend at home, toiling hard over the steward's books, in his interest and for his sake. "'Dear old fellow,' thought Alan, "'I shall be so glad to see him at the mere. "'The day's pleasure won't be complete till he joins us.' "'Should I be right or wrong, Mr. Armadale, "'if I guessed that you were thinking of somebody?' "'asked a voice softly behind him. "'Alan turned and found the major's daughter at his side. "'Miss Milroy, not unmindful of a certain tender interview "'which had taken place behind a carriage, "'had noticed her admirer standing thoughtfully by himself, "'and had determined on giving him another opportunity "'while her father and young Pegged Gift were at the top of the watchtower. "'You know everything,' said Alan, smiling. "'I was thinking of somebody.' Miss Milroy stole a glance at him, a glance of gentle encouragement. There could be but one human creature in Mr. Armadale's mind after what had passed between them that morning. It would be only an act of mercy to take him back again at once to the interrupted conversation of a few hours since on the subject of names. "'I have been thinking of somebody, too,' she said, half inviting, half repelling the coming avowal. "'If I tell you the first letter of my somebody's name, will you tell me the first letter of yours?' "'I will tell you anything you like,' rejoined Alan with the utmost enthusiasm. She still shrank coquettishly from the very subject that she wanted to approach. "'Tell me your letter first, she said in low tones, looking away from him. Alan laughed. "'M,' he said, "'is my first letter.' She started a little. Strange that he should be thinking of her by her surname instead of her Christian name, but it mattered little as long as he was thinking of her. "'What is your letter?' asked Alan. She blushed and smiled. "'Hey, if you will have it,' she answered, in a reluctant little whisper. She stole another look at him, and luxuriously protracted her enjoyment of the coming avowal once more. "'How many syllables is the name in?' she asked, drawing patterns shyly on the ground with the end of the parasol. No man with the slightest knowledge of the sex would have been rash enough, in Alan's position, to tell her the truth. Alan, who knew nothing whatever of woman's natures, and who told the truth right and left in all mortal emergencies, answered as if he had been under examination in a court of justice. "'It's a name in three syllables,' he said. Miss Milroy's downcast eyes flashed up at him like lightning. Three, she repeated in the blankest astonishment. Alan was too inveterately straightforward to take the warning even now. "'I'm not strong at my spelling, I know,' he said with his light-hearted laugh, but I don't think I'm wrong in calling Midwinter a name in three syllables. I was thinking of my friend, but never mind my thoughts. Tell me who A is. Tell me whom you were thinking of. Of the first letter of the alphabet, Mr. Armadale, and I beg positively to inform you of nothing more. With that annihilating answer, the major's daughter put up a parasol, 
and walked back by herself to the boat. Alan stood petrified with amazement. If Miss Miroy had actually boxed his ears, and there is no denying that she had privately longed to devote her hand to that purpose, he could hardly have felt more bewildered than he felt now. "'What on earth have I done?' he asked himself helplessly as the Major and young Pedgift joined him and the three walked down together to the waterside. "'I wonder what she'll say to me next.' She said absolutely nothing. She never so much as looked at Alan when he took his place in the boat. There she sat, with her eyes and her complexion both much brighter than usual, taking the deepest interest in the curate's progress toward recovery, in the state of Mrs. Bentcoast's spirits, in Pedgift Jr., for whom she ostentatiously made room enough to let him sit beside her, in the scenery and the reed-cutter's cottage, in everybody and everything but Ellen, whom she would have married with the greatest pleasure five minutes since. I'll never forgive him, thought the major's daughter. To be thinking of that ill-bred wretch when I was thinking of him, and to make me all but confess it before I found him out? Thank heaven Mr. Pedgift is in the boat. In this frame of mind Miss Neely applied herself forthwith to the fascination of Pedgift and the discomfiture of Ellen. Oh, Mr. Pedgift, how extremely clever and kind of you to think of showing us that sweet cottage. Lonely, Mr. Armadale? I don't think it's lonely at all. I should like of all things to live there. What would this picnic have been without you, Mr. Pedgift? You can't think how I have enjoyed it since we got into the boat. Cool, Mr. Armadale? What can you possibly mean by saying it's cool? It's the warmest evening we've had this summer. And the music, Mr. Pedgift, how nice it was of you to bring your concertina. I wonder if I could accompany you on the piano? I would so like to try. Oh, yes, Mr. Armadale, no doubt you meant to do something musical, too, and I dare say you sing very well when you know the words. But to tell you the truth, I always did, and always shall, hate Moore's melodies. Thus, with merciless dexterity of manipulation, did Miss Milroy work the sharpest female weapon of offence, the tongue. And thus she would have used it for some time longer, if Alan had only shown the necessary jealousy, or if Pedgift had only afforded the necessary encouragement. But adverse fortune had decreed that she should select for her victims two men essentially unassailable under existing circumstances. Alan was too innocent of all knowledge of female subtleties and susceptibilities to understand anything, except that the charming Neely was unreasonably out of temper with him without the slightest cause. The wary Pedgift, as became one of the quick-witted youth of the present generation, submitted to female influence with his eye fixed immovably all the time on his own interests. Many a young man of the past generation, who was no fool, has sacrificed everything for love. Not one young man in ten thousand of the present generation, except the fools, has sacrificed a halfpenny. The daughters of Eve still inherit their mother's merits and commit their mother's faults. But the sons of Adam in these latter days are men who would have handed the famous apple back with a bow and a Thanks. No, it might get me into a scrape. When Alan, surprised and disappointed, moved away out of Miss Milroy's reach to the forward part of the boat, Pedgift Jr. rose and followed him. You're a very nice girl, thought this shrewdly sensible young man. But a client's a client, and I'm sorry to inform you, miss, it won't do. He set himself at once to rouse Alan's spirits by diverting his attention to a new subject. 
There was to be a regatta that autumn on one of the broads, and his client's opinion as a yachtsman might be valuable to the committee. "'Something new, I should think, to you, sir, in a sailing match on fresh water?' he said in his most ingratiatory manner. And Alan, instantly interested, answered, "'Quite new. Do tell me about it.' As for the rest of the party, at the other end of the boat, they were in a fair way to confirm Mrs. Pentecost's doubt whether the hilarity of the picnic would last the day out. Poor Nini's natural feeling of irritation under the disappointment which Alan's awkwardness had inflicted on her was now exasperated into silent and settled resentment by her own keen sense of humiliation and defeat. The major had relapsed into his habitually dreamy, absent manner. His mind was turning monotonously with the wheels of his clock. The curate still secluded his indigestion from public view in the innermost recesses of the cabin, and the curate's mother, with a second dose ready at a moment's notice, sat on guard at the door. Women of Mrs. Pencoast's age and character generally enjoy their own bad spirits. This, sighed the old lady, wagging her head with a smile of sour satisfaction, is what you call the day's pleasure, is it? Ah, what fools we all were to leave our comfortable homes! Meanwhile the boat floated smoothly along the windings of the watery labyrinth which lay between the two broads. The view on either side was now limited to nothing but interminable rows of reeds. Not a sound was heard far or near, not so much as a glimpse of cultivated or inhabited land appeared anywhere. A trifle dreary hereabouts, Mr. Armadale, said the ever-cheerful Pedgift, but we are just out of it now. Look ahead, sir. Here we are, at Hurlemere. The reeds opened back on the right hand and the left, and the boat glided suddenly into the wide circle of the pool. Round the nearer half of the circle, the eternal reeds still fringed the margin of the water. Round the further half, the land appeared again, here rolling back from the pool in desolated sandhills, there rising above it in a sweep of grassy shore. At one point the ground was occupied by a plantation, and at another by the outbuildings of a lonely old red brick house, with a strip of by-road near, that skirted the garden wall and ended at the pool. The sun was sinking in the clear heaven, and the water, where the sun's reflection failed to tinge it, was beginning to look black and cold. The solitude that had been soothing, the silence that had felt like an enchantment on the other broad, in the day's vigorous prime, was a solitude that saddened here, a silence that struck cold in the stillness and melancholy of the day's decline. The course of the boat was directed across the mere to a creek in the grassy shore. One or two of the little flat-bottomed ponds peculiar to the broods lay in the creek, and the reed-cutters to whom the ponds belonged, surprised at the appearance of strangers, came out, staring silently, from behind an angle of the old garden wall. Not another sign of life was visible anywhere. No pony chaise had been seen by the reed cutters. No stranger, either man or woman, had approached the shores of Hermia that day. Young Pedgift took another look at his watch and addressed himself to Miss Milroy. You may or may not see the governess when you get back to Thorpe Ambrose, he said. But as the time stands now, you won't see her here. You know best, Mr. Armadale, he added, turning to Alan, whether your friend is to be depended on to keep his appointment? 
I am certain he is to be dependent on, replied Alan, looking about him, in unconcealed disappointment at Midwinter's absence. Very good, pursued Pettigift Jr. If we light the fire for our gypsy tea-making on the open ground there, your friend may find us out, sir, by the smoke. That's the Indian dodge for picking up a lost man on the prairie, Miss Milroy, and it's pretty nearly wild enough, isn't it, to be a prairie here? There are some temptations, principally those of the smaller kind, which it is not in the defensive capacity of female human nature to resist. The temptation to direct the whole force of her influence, as the one young lady of the party, toward the instant overthrow of Alan's arrangement for meeting his friend, was too much for the major's daughter. She turned on the smiling Pedgift with a look which ought to have overwhelmed him. But who ever overwhelmed a solicitor? I think it's the most lonely, dreary, hideous place I ever saw in my life, said Miss Neely. If you insist on making tea here, Mr. Pedgift, don't make any for me. No, I shall stop in the boat, and, though I am absolutely dying with thirst, I shall touch nothing till we get back again to the other boat. The Major opened his lips to remonstrate. To his daughter's infinite delight, Mrs. Pencoast rose from her seat before he could say a word, and, after surveying the whole landward prospect, and seeing nothing in the shape of a vehicle anywhere, asked indignantly whether they were going all the way back again to the place where they had left the carriages in the middle of the day. On ascertaining that this was, in fact, the arrangement proposed, and that, from the nature of the country, the carriages could not have been ordered round to Hurlmere without, in the first instance, sending them the whole of the way back to Thorpe Ambrose, Mrs. Pencoast, speaking in her son's interests, instantly declared that no earthly power should induce her to be out on the water after dark. "'Call me a boat!' cried the old lady in great agitation. "'Wherever there's water, there's a night mist, and wherever there's a night mist, my son Samuel catches cold. Don't talk to me about your moonlight and your tea-making. You're all mad! Hi, you two men there!' cried Mrs. Pencoast, hailing the silent reed-cutters on shore. Sixpence a piece for you, if you'll take me and my son back in your boat. Before young Pedgift could interfere, Alan himself settled the difficulty this time, with perfect patience and good temper. I can't think, Mrs. Pencoast, of your going back in any boat but the boat you have come out in, he said. There is not the least need, as you and Miss Milroy don't like the place, for anybody to go on shore here but me. I must go on shore. My friend Midwinter never broke his promise to me yet, and I can't consent to leave Hurlmere as long as there is a chance of his keeping his appointment. But there's not the least reason in the world why I should stand in the way on that account. You have the Major and Mr. Pedgift to take care of you, and you can get back to the carriages before dark if you go at once. I will wait here and give my friend half an hour more, and then I can follow you in one of the reed-cutter's boats. That's the most sensible thing, Mr. Armadale, you've said to-day remarked Mrs. Pencoast, seating herself again in a violent hurry. "'Tell them to be quick!' cried the old lady, shaking her fist at the boatman. "'Tell them to be quick!' Alan gave the necessary directions and stepped on shore. The wary Pedgift, sticking fast to his client, tried to follow. "'We can't leave you here alone, sir,' he said, protesting eagerly in a whisper. "'Let the Major take care of the ladies, and let me keep you company at the mere.' "'No, no,' said Alan, pressing him back. "'They're all in low spirits on board. 
If you want to be of service to me, stop like a good fellow where you are, and do your best to keep the thing going. He waved his hand, and the men pushed the boat off from the shore. The others all waved their hands in return, except the major's daughter, who sat apart from the rest, with her face hidden under her parasol. The tears stood thick in Neelie's eyes. Her last angry feeling against Alan died out, and her heart went back to him penitently the moment he left the boat. How good he is to us all, she thought, and what a wretch I am! She got up with every generous impulse in her nature, urging her to make atonement to him. She got up, reckless of appearances, and looked after him with eager eyes and flushed cheeks, as he stood alone on the shore. Don't be long, Mr. Armadale, she said, with a desperate disregard of what the rest of the company thought of her. The boat was already far out in the water, and with all Nini's resolution the words were spoken in a faint little voice, which failed to reach Ellen's ears. The one sound he heard, as the boat gained the opposite extremity of the mere, and disappeared slowly among the reeds, was the sound of the concertina. The indefatigable Pedgift was keeping things going, evidently under the auspices of Mrs. Pencoast, by performing a sacred melody. Left by himself, Alan lit a cigar, and took a turn backward and forward on the shore. She might have said a word to me at parting, he thought. I've done everything for the best. I've as good as told her how fond of her I am, and this is the way she treats me. He stopped and stood looking absently at the sinking sun and the fast-darkening waters of the mere. Some inscrutable influence in the scene forced its way stealthily into his mind, and diverted his thoughts from Miss Milroy to his absent friend. He started, and looked about him. The reed-cutters had gone back to their retreat behind the angle of the wall, not a living creature was visible, not a sound rose anywhere along the dreary shore. Even Alan's spirits began to get depressed. It was nearly an hour after the time when Midwinter had promised to be at Hermere. He had himself arranged to walk to the pool, with a stable-boy from Thorpe Ambrose as his guide, by lanes and footpaths which shortened the distance by the road. The boy knew the country well, and Midwinter was habitually punctual at all his appointments. Had anything gone wrong at Thorpe Ambrose? Had some accident happened on the way? Determined to remain no longer doubting and idling by himself, Alan made up his mind to walk inland from the mere, on the chance of meeting his friend. He went round at once to the angle in the wall, and asked one of the reed-cutters, to show him the footpath to Thorpe Ambrose. The man led him away from the road, and pointed to a barely perceptible break in the outer trees of the plantation. After posing for one more useless look around him, Alan turned his back on the mere and made for the trees. For a few paces, the path ran straight through the plantation. Thence it took a sudden turn, and the water and the open country became both lost to view. Alan steadily followed the grassy track before him, seeing nothing and hearing nothing, until he came to another winding of the path. Turning in the new direction, he saw dimly a human figure sitting alone at the foot of one of the trees. Two steps nearer were enough to make the figure familiar to him. "'Midwinter!' he exclaimed in astonishment. "'This is not the place where I was to meet you. What are you waiting for here?' Midwinter rose without answering. The evening dimness among the trees, which obscured his face, made his silence doubly perplexing. Alan went on eagerly questioning him. 
"'Did you come here by yourself?' he asked. "'I thought the boy was to guide you.' "'This time,' Midwinter answered. "'When we got as far as these trees,' he said, "'I sent the boy back. "'He told me I was close to the place and couldn't miss it.' "'What made you stop here when he left you?' reiterated Allan. "'Why didn't you walk on?' "'Don't despise me,' answered the other. "'I hadn't the courage.' "'Not the courage?' repeated Allan. He paused a moment. "'Oh, I know,' he resumed, putting his hand gaily on Midwinter's shoulder. "'You're still shy of the Milroys. "'What nonsense when I told you myself that your piece was made at the cottage. "'I wasn't thinking, Allan, of your friends at the cottage. "'The truth is, I'm hardly myself to-day. "'I am ill and unnerved. Trifles startled me.' He stopped and shrank away under the anxious scrutiny of Allan's eyes. "'If you will have it,' he burst out abruptly, "'the horror of that night on board the wreck has got me again. "'There's a dreadful oppression on my head. "'There's a dreadful sinking at my heart. "'I am afraid of something happening to us "'if we don't part before the day is out. "'I can't break my promise to you. "'For God's sake, release me from it, and let me go back.' "'Remonstrance to anyone who knew Midwinter "'was plainly useless at that moment. "'Alan humored him. "'Come out of this dark, airless place,' he said, "'and we will talk about it. "'The water and the open sky are within a stone throw of us. "'I hate a wood in the evening. "'It even gives me the horrors. "'You have been working too hard over the steward's box. "'Come and breathe freely in the blessed open air.' "'Midwinter stopped, considered for a moment, and suddenly submitted. "'You're right,' he said, "'and I'm wrong as usual.' I'm wasting time and distressing you to no purpose. What folly to ask you to let me go back. Suppose you had said yes? Well, asked Alan. Well, repeated Midwinter, something would have happened at the first step to stop me, that's all. Come on. They walked together in silence on the way to the mere. At the last turn in the path, Alan's cigarette went out. While he stopped to light it again, Midwinter walked on before him and was the first to come inside of the open ground. Alan had just kindled the match, when, to his surprise, his friend came back to him round the turn in the path. There was light enough to show objects more clearly in this part of the plantation. The match, as Midwinter faced him, dropped on the instant from Alan's hand. "'Good God!' he cried, starting back. "'You look as you looked on board the wreck!' Midwinter held up his hand for silence. He spoke with his wild eyes riveted on Alan's face, with his white lips close at Alan's ear. "'You remember how I looked?' he answered in a whisper. "'Do you remember what I said when you and the doctor were talking of the dream?' "'I have forgotten the dream,' said Alan. As he made that answer, Midwinter took his hand and led him round the last turn in the path. "'Do you remember it now?' he asked, and pointed to the mere. The sun was sinking in the cloudless westward heaven. The waters of the mere lay beneath, tinged red by the dying light. The open country stretched away, darkening drearily already on the right hand and the left. And on the near mountain of the pool, where all had been solitude before, there now stood, fronting the sunset, the figure of a woman. The two Armadales stood together in silence, and looked at the lonely figure and the dreary view. Midwinter was the first to speak. "'Your own eyes have seen it,' he said. "'Now look at your own words.' He opened the narrative of the dream and held it under Alan's eyes. His finger pointed to the lines which recorded the first vision. His voice, sinking lower and lower, repeated the words. The sense came to me of being left alone in the darkness. I waited. 
the darkness opened and showed me the vision, as in a picture, of a broad lonely pool surrounded by open ground. Above the further margin of the pool I saw the cloudless western sky, red with the light of sunset. On the near margin of the pool there stood the shadow of a woman. He seized and let the hand which held the manuscript drop to his side. The other hand pointed to the lonely figure, standing with its back turned on them, fronting the setting sun. There, he said, stands the living woman in the shadow's place. There speaks the first of the dream warnings to you and to me. Let the future time find us still together, and the second figure that stands in the shadow's place will be mine. Even Alan was silenced by the terrible certainty of conviction with which he spoke. In the pause that followed, the figure at the pool moved and walked slowly away round the margin of the shore. Alan stepped out beyond the last of the trees and gained a wider view of the open ground. The first object that met his eyes was the pony chaise from Thorpe Ambrose. He turned back to Midwinter with a laugh of relief. "'What nonsense have you been talking?' he said. "'And what nonsense have I been listening to? "'It's the governess at last.' "'Midwinter made no reply. "'Alan took him by the arm and tried to lead him on. "'He released himself suddenly and seized Alan with both hands, "'holding him back from the figure at the pool, "'as he had held him back from the cabin door on the deck of the timber ship. "'Once again the effort was in vain. "'Once again Alan broke away as easily as he had broken away in the past time. One of us must speak to her, he said, and if you want, I will. He had only advanced a few steps toward the mere when he heard, or thought he heard, a voice faintly calling after him, once and once only, the word farewell. He stopped with a feeling of uneasy surprise and looked round. Was that you, Midwinter? he asked. There was no answer. After hesitating a moment more, Alan returned to the plantation. Midwinter was gone. He looked back at the pool, doubtful in the new emergency what to do next. The lonely figure had altered its course in the interval. It had turned and was advancing toward the trees. Alan had been evidently either heard or seen. It was impossible to leave a woman unbefriended in that helpless position and in that solitary place. For the second time, Alan went out from the trees to meet her. As he came within sight of her face, he stopped, in ungovernable astonishment. The sudden revelation of her beauty, as she smiled and looked at him inquiringly, suspended the movement in his limbs and the words on his lips. A vague doubt beset him whether it was the governess after all. He roused himself and, advancing a few paces, mentioned his name. "'May I ask,' he added, "'if I have the pleasure?' The lady met him easily and gracefully halfway. Major Miroy's governess, she said. Miss Gwilt. End of chapter. Recording by Nadine Eckert-Boulet.